Talent wins games, but teamwork wins championships. Welcome to A Players, the podcast where we'll tell you how to target, hire, retain, and train top performers for your team. You know, the analogy that I use is kind of in the early days pre product market fit, you're building a Navy SEALs team, you're building a Special Forces team. If one person is injured, everyone else can take over the role. In post product market fit, you're building an army. Everyone's got a specialized job. They do their thing great, but they really don't do other people's things great. And a lot of times people confuse where they are and hire the wrong types of people. I am Robin Choi, CEO at HireSuite, and we are sourcing automation software that helps 900 tech companies hire the best talents. Add me and follow me now on LinkedIn if you want to keep an eye on us. Nice. So today I'm very honored to have you, Michael, on the A Players podcast. Welcome. Michael is the very known, what is it, CEO at YC. Mm -hmm. So uh, very happy to have you today. You helped a lot of startups grow. So we won't talk about YC because I think the portfolio is very famous now. And you also selected a lot of founders to join the program. And so my main question to start with the podcast would be, what's an A player to you? What's a top performer to you? either in a founder, how do you find founders that will be top performers, or in early stage employees in startups? Let's start with employees. I think that a lot of founders make some very simple mistakes when hiring employees. I think the first mistake is that they don't logically think through the idea that even if they are a great hirer, a great recruiter, probably one out of every two people that they hire will not be the right fit. And so even if they're great at hiring, they're going to also need to be a very respectful, but very on the ball, firer of employees. And that's part of the responsibility of hiring. And so I think that's sort of the first thing that, that founders don't get when hiring. I think the second thing that founders don't understand is when it's time to let an employee go. And so this is the rule that I use. You know, on a employee's first day of work, you want to put a calendar event that's three months after their first day of work. And in that calendar event, you want to ask yourself a question. Just put this right in the description. If this employee were to resign on that day, how would you feel? And there are three answers. Relieved, <laughs> indifferent, or you would feel like someone just broke up with you, like your boyfriend or girlfriend just broke up with you. Okay. Essential employees, the employees that early stage startups should really hold on to, are the ones that fit the third category. Where if this person, after three months, told you they were leaving, you would feel sick to your stomach. You wouldn't want to come into work the next day. This is the bar for an essential employee. And one of the things that startups do very wrong is they hire too many employees, they have a low bar for those employees. And then they don't get rid of the folks who are not performing. And this basically is one of the things that creates a death cycle that is really hard to recover from because you end up having more employees, which means you burn more money. As a founder who's pre-product market fit, your mind shifts from the customer and the product to managing the team. And so you spend less time with your customer and your product, which means you slow down the process of getting product market fit. You speed up how much money you're burning, you slow down the process of getting product market fit, almost inevitably, you run out of money before you hit product market fit. Extremely common problem 
So just understanding that when you take on the responsibility of hiring employees, you're also taking on the responsibility of responsibly letting them go. That's extremely important. And if you let go of employees early, it gives you the ability to be far more generous, to offer more severance, to assist them in finding other jobs, et cetera. If you get into this death spiral, inevitably when your company runs out of business, you're going to have to fire all the employees with very little notice and with very little assistance that you can provide them. So it's far more responsible to do it earlier rather than later. I think for founders, when I'm looking at founders, there are a couple of things that make great teams stand out. I would say that, let's say there are five. One is, is the team technical? Do they have the ability to build the product? Or are they relying on outsourced engineering? Two is the team have some pre-existing relationship. College friends, friends outside of college, work colleagues, something that's going to keep the team together when things are not going well something that's going to allow the team to trust one another and use each other for support. The third is the amount of progress they've made over the time they've been working. So I care less about exactly how far along they are. I care more about how much were they able to get done over the period of time they've been working. The next one is how clearly they communicate their ideas. A lot of founders just trip over themselves with language and they can't communicate what they're doing in clear, concise words that even their parents or their siblings would understand. And the problem there is that if you can't communicate yourself clearly, how are you going to communicate to a team of 20 people, 100 people, 1,000 people, a team that you're going to have to build and motivate if this is going to be a successful company? And the last thing is summarize this kind of unique insight. You know, sometimes it's called special sauce. The reality is like, do you know something that others don't? Usually that comes with having personal experience with the problem, whether you encounter the problem at work or in your life or in your loved one's lives, your community's lives. But do you know something that others don't? And can you clearly communicate that? So I would say that, you know, when we're doing interviews and reading YC applications, those are the five things that we're trying to pick up from early stage founding teams. What you say a lot during YC and that you say again today is that people tend to think they're good at hiring if they don't fire anybody, if they don't let go of anybody. What you are saying is the complete opposite. If you don't let go of people, if you don't fire anybody, you're probably very bad at hiring because that's part of the job, right? Yes, you're probably very bad at because to be honest, it's not even just the people that you're hiring. It's just that like sometimes great people aren't a fit for your culture. They're not getting things done in your company. They don't have a passion for your company. And so this isn't to speak poorly of the employees. There are lots of very, very talented employees that would be 10x performers at one company and not great performance at another. And so it's really your job to figure out where that employee is. And what's the biggest advice you give to funders about hiring when they join YC and when they leave YC just after the demo day? Yeah, so within YC, we typically tell founders to not hire. And the reason why is almost inevitably, if you think about YC, it's a three-month program. Almost inevitably, it's going to take you at least a month to recruit someone. That's going to take you at least a month for them to be ready for their first day and at least a month to onboard them. Bang, that's three months. So you think that they're going to help you accomplish your goals for demo day, but the reality is, is that they probably won't. After YC, our typical advice is you don't hire someone for a role that you haven't done yourself. And I think that there's a kind of conventional wisdom around hiring that's wrong, 
which is that like, oh, you know, as a founder, you should look to hire experts for all of the roles that you have. Well, what I would say is that in the early days of building a company, in the very early days, you actually really need people who are cross-functional, people who can do any kind of job, people who will be motivated by the mission of the company. You want people who are flexible. You are not looking for specialists. I think post-product market fit, you consider specialists. So, you know, the analogy that I use is kind of in the early days, pre-product market fit, you're building a Navy SEALs team. You're building a special forces team. If one person is injured, everyone else can take over the role. In post-product market fit, you're building an army. Everyone's got a specialized job. They do their thing great, but they really don't do other people's things great. And a lot of times people confuse where they are and hire the wrong types of people. The second thing is that you're probably not going to be qualified to interview someone for a role if you haven't done it yourself. If you're technical, that often means doing sales. If you're not technical, maybe that means doing product or doing PR yourself or you know any of the roles, customer service yourself. So typically, the goal is you do the job yourself until you understand it and until you are struggling. And then you start the process of trying to hire someone to replace yourself. And when they come in, you teach them everything that you've learned about the role, and hopefully they can take that and run with it and do even better than you did. And would that mean that you would rather hire junior talents that you can train and you can give them the roadmap and the toolkits instead of senior talent and that senior talent would rather be after product market fit? Would you say that? Yeah, I want to distinguish between junior and senior. I think that's a little bit tricky. What I would say is that certainly there's a bias towards engineers versus not engineers pre-product market fit, because typically a co-founder can do one of the business tasks that are needed. And in businesses that don't require expertise, there's kind of a bias for action-oriented people who get things done fast versus extremely experienced people or extremely meticulous people. I think that those people are more valuable post-product market fit. I will say that there are some exceptions, though. There are some companies that, for example, need a very complicated business development deal to really get started or need some relationship with the government or some license to get started where it can be helpful to have an experienced person there early. But that is pretty rare, I would say. Okay. And do you have any advice that you give during the interview process to determine if those people are rather biased for action or can you determine this during the interview process? Yeah, I mean, the way that we tell whether a company is a bias for action comes back down to what have they done over the period of time they've been working. So I'll give you kind of a bad example, right? So we came up with the idea a year ago. We have an advisory board. We have mock-ups of the product. We've done user surveys and user interviews. We've started a biz dev conversation with a larger company, but we haven't built a product, launched a product, gotten our first 10 users. That's the typical profile of a company where I'm concerned, can they execute it all? Can they actually push something out in the world and get anyone to use it? On the flip side, a company that's really excited is like, oh, we're creating a consumer or a B2B product. We started working on it full-time a month ago. We already have the first version of the product in beta, and we've introduced three potential customers to it, and they're trying it out. That's really exciting. Because, you know, they have an orientation towards action, towards learning, towards pushing product out there. They're able to build product quickly. The way that 
sometimes investors talk about this, is that founders who can take more shots on goal tend to be easier to fund than founders who want to take the perfect shot on goal. And so, you know, we rather a team that's action-oriented, that puts something out there, sees if their customer likes it, learns and iterates, versus one that wants to make the perfect thing and then launch it to the world. And is that something that you should look for in employees as well, pre-product market fit? Yes, I think pre-product market fit, you definitely should be looking for people who are willing to trade off some amount of technical debt for speed. I think that there's this fallacy that exists amongst some early stage software engineers. It's a fallacy that they default think the company is going to work. And so therefore, they should be building something that can work for the next 10 years. <laughs> the reality is that in most industries, you shouldn't be doing that. Of course, there are exceptions, of course. But in most industries, the biggest risk is whether or not your product solves anyone's problem, not can you build the solution in a robust way. And so what you should be thinking about is that in the scenario where almost everyone fails, getting a product in the customer's hands so you can learn from them is far more important than getting something that's perfectly scalable and that can explode with usage day one. Because what's most common is you launch something and nobody cares because either you don't know how to distribute it or because it doesn't actually solve anyone's problem in the first version and you have to iterate it and change it. So Definitely folks who are action-oriented should be your initial employees. And folks who get excited, I've noticed they're kind of engineers who are nervous about launching versus engineers who are excited about launching. The engineer who's excited about launching and willing to fix some bugs on the fly tends to be a better fit for earlier stage founders than the engineer who is trying to squash every bug before a user's ever seen the product. And so for funders, you mentioned, so those five things you're looking for, the technical ability, pre-existing relationships, the amount of progress, communication, and the, do you know something that other people don't? So that's a pretty biased interview process. But then comes to the sourcing, how do you find the founders? So you get a lot of application. Do you actually do outreach at YC? Do you try to reach out to people and convince them to apply? So I'll say this. I think there have been probably three things that YC did very early on that I think are the base of why a lot of companies apply to YC. The first is that we have an open application. And so anyone can come to the website and apply to receive funding from us at any time. And this is very different from almost every other investor who requires you to get a warm introduction of some sort or to know somebody or to have some kind of background in order to get a conversation. The second thing, and you know, this seems obvious now, but it wasn't as obvious in 2005 when YC started. We have a bias towards technical people. You know, we have a bias towards the people who can actually build as opposed to folks who can't. And then the third really important thing was we have a very, very high bar. So YC acceptance rate has only decreased over the last 15 years. And when we were very early, we were very small because we wanted to make sure that the batches were as high quality as possible before we had a lot of applicants. What that has done has made a culture of YC that regardless of whether your batchmates are successful or not, because there's a lot of luck in being successful, they're all going to be talented. They're going to be people that you are 
excited to be in a group with. They're going to be people who you want to be supported with, people you want to ask questions to, people who are going to motivate you to work harder and to work faster. And I think that that's really, really important. One of the things that I say a lot is that if you take all of the students at MIT and you move them to a tiny college down the road, that becomes one of the best engineering colleges in the world. And so a lot of what makes YC great is not the advice and da 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 da. It's the quality of the people who are going through it. So nowadays, we basically get to take advantage of that culture that we started. You know, acceptance rate into YC is now somewhere between one and a half and two percent. And, you know, every six months, we'll get somewhere between 10 and 16,000 companies apply. And so, you know, while we do do outreach, Specifically, we do a lot of outreach internationally and with university students. It's not really the same as a VC who's going out there and trying to find companies to invest in. It's far more just trying to introduce the basic ideas behind doing startups to as many people as possible and trying to just teach them some of the same advice that we give to YC companies in our program. What's very interesting is even with a large number of applicants as you have you're still doing some outreach and still trying to, what is it, target maybe people that wouldn't apply otherwise? It's interesting. Yes, because one of the things that we've noticed is that a lot of people don't apply to YC because of something that is not true. It'll be, oh, somebody told me that you can't get into YC unless you have this. Or somebody told me you can't get into YC unless you have that. And so a lot of the times people don't apply because they don't think they can get in because somebody something that doesn't know anything told them something. And so a lot of the times the purpose of our outreach is to just talk about what we really do, how it really works, so that you can kind of hear from us instead of over-believing people who don't know as much as us about YC. Yeah, and what I like at YC is that because you're doing this sourcing around the world, then you get the smartest people from all those different countries. And again, that's something that you didn't stay in. You didn't just consider that you should target engineers in the Bay Area. You really expanded in the world. Yeah, I mean, you know, nowadays, somewhere between 30 and 50% of a YC batch is going to be international. And more and more, those folks are not building companies in the US. They're coming to YC to learn but they're building companies in their own regions. And so we literally have founders in every major region of the world building startups, which is really exciting for us. And so a lot of companies today, especially with the pandemic, consider hiring internationally and maybe sometimes building fully distributed teams. What's your take on that? I would say I don't know. <laughs> I would say that this choice of whether to build distributed or not is as much a function of the founder's personality and the type of organization they're trying to build as it is part of company strategy. So I think that COVID has shown us that teams can work together effectively remotely. But what I think it hasn't shown us is, does that create an environment that's the most motivational for your team and for you? And so I think that's a personal choice. I've seen some founders who are massively driven by the goal of creating a remote company. You know, we funded a company named Zapier, for example, another one named GitLab. They're two very successful remote companies. On the other hand, I see some founders who basically say to me, oh, well, we're building a remote company because it's cheaper. And those folks I'm not excited about at all. One, because 
I think it doesn't reflect how a pre-product market founder should think. You know, you're not going to be hiring a lot of people pre-product market fit. And so your goal should be to hire the best people possible. And it almost doesn't matter how expensive they are because if they can help you reach product market fit, you're going to get a deal. Like you're getting far more value out of them. <laughs> um, and so I think that sometimes founders think about engineers almost like buying raw materials. Like, oh, well, I can buy high quality iron here, but I could buy it for cheaper over there. And that's not the mentality we want people to have around engineering. The mentality we want people to have is that one great person is worth 10, sometimes 50 not great people. And so this is not about how do I acquire raw materials, commodities at the cheapest price. Software engineers are not commodities. And oftentimes kind of business founders get this confused and they kind of think about software engineers as just kind of like, you know, hands. Oh, like this is a tech enabled business. We don't have to build good software. We just need something out there. And all I need is these software engineers to type real fast and get something out there. And we're looking to invest in companies that are going to use software as one of their core competitive advantages. And so you should always think that if you're in a market with a number of competitors, and most good markets have a number of competitors, who's going to win? Your software team or the software team of your competitors? And if your software team isn't a competitive advantage, I would argue you should be very concerned because I've never seen customer service people, business people, business development people, lawyers, I've never seen them have as much impact as an amazing engineer. I've never seen it. And it's not to say those people aren't great. I'm a business guy myself. All I'm trying to say is that like, they never have as much impact as an amazing engineer. Okay. And do you have a general rule of thumb on how many people you should hire before finding product market fits? Do you have that rule? You know, I think it's tricky because every team and every founding team has different size and has different ability to manage. What I typically tell founders pre-product market fit is try to keep your burn under $50,000 a month. And I think that this kind of guideline does two things. One, it tends to have companies orient towards revenue because the more money they make, the more money they can spend every month. Because remember, burn rate is just your net, is what leaves the bank out every month. It's not your total expenses. The second thing that I've seen kind of time and time again is that somewhere between eight and 12 employees, the CEO's job fundamentally changes. And, you know, some people have called this the like two pizza rule, like how many people can you feed with two pizzas? But there's something around the point somewhere between eight and 12 employees where suddenly the CEO and the founders have to really embrace the role of management and embrace the ability to communicate really well. And, you know, at kind of eight and under, typically they don't have to be as good managers and as good communicators because it's just a small enough group of people that it's easier to handle more informally. And so to me, the kind of trick I'd be asking myself is, am I having to become more and more of a manager pre-product market fit? You know, so do I have to start formalizing 101s payment bans, career development, all hands meetings. Like, Do I have to start doing the kind of more formal things that a company has to do? Pre-product market fit. If I am doing those things, and once again, this is, you know, there are always exceptions, but if I am doing those things, I should hesitate. And I should ask myself, is this the best use of my time or do I have too many people in my company? 
and you know has poor hiring forced me into this management role whereas i really should be spending all that time talking to my customers and my last question would be so we talked a lot give a lot of advice for early stage pre product market fit founders and then when you hit product market fit everything changes what's the top two three advice that you give to founders that already hit product market fit i think that for the folks who already hit product market fit one of their largest challenges is hiring executives so there's this transition that a founder goes from trying to hit product market fit to what we call company building And when you're doing company building, what you're really trying to do is to get more people to use the thing that's working. And I think in that process, sometimes founders believe that the executives they bring in to head sales or to head recruiting or to head their engineering team or to head product, sometimes I think that founders over-rely on those executives to a fault. They believe that those executives have the right answers because they're more experienced than they are. And more often than not, what I see founders actually having to do is they're just as bad at hiring executives as they were at hiring employees. And so more often than not, they have to go through the process of hiring a number of executives, realizing that they're not a good fit, letting them go before they actually learn what a good executive does, what a good fit is, etc. And so just preparing them for the idea that they're going to have to be interacting with a lot of different executives they're going to have to be very good at hiring the right ones and they have to be very good at letting go of people who aren't a good fit i think that's that's a really major challenge and poor executives can effectively reverse product market fit because once you've built something that people want everyone can see that and so if you don't execute quickly someone else will replicate your feature set and if they're executing faster than you they can beat you. And so I think that's the biggest challenge that I see. But I have to be honest, most founders lie to themselves about product market fit. And so I actually think what's interesting is like once you have product market fit, it's almost your game to lose. The bigger problem are founders who tell themselves they have product market fit when they really don't. Who tell themselves, "Oh, you know, we have product market fit, but if you look at the numbers, they're spending $200,000 a month." on marketing and only making $100,000 back. Or oh, we have product market fit, but we have negative unit economics. So every customer we lose. Or we have product market fit, but we have really bad retention. And so after three months, nobody stays in the product. We have to recruit new users. You know, that's the bigger issue. It's not post product market fit. Post product market fit is hard, but it's a different kind of challenge. I think lying to yourself about product market fit is the thing that harms most companies who have successfully raised the seed round and it's why so many companies who raise money still die that's the big issue why is that because they don't have a real product market fit because they don't have a real product market fit but they think they do so they do company building right they start hiring executives they start hiring more employees they start hiring 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 and their costs increase but because there's some core problem with their product their revenue does not increase in turn And then they look up one day and they have 20, 30, 40 people, but they're burning a lot of money and their revenue has only grown 50% year over year or 100% year over year. And suddenly they're in the trap where they want to raise money but that growth isn't exciting to an investor and they realize, "Oh crap, we have all these people, we didn't actually have product market fit because our revenue is not growing and we have a problem." And so what's interesting is like 
I think that like, for some reason, a lot of founders believe that the hard part is getting a product in the wild. And that's not true. Like a lot of talented people can get a product launched. The hard part is not lying to yourself about how good that product is. And is really spending a lot of time with your customers so you understand whether that product is really solving their problem and they are really desperate to use your product or whether it's just a nice to have. Okay, so the main advice that you would give is make sure you have product market fit. That's the game. And if you've raised money and you still have a small number of employees and you still have a lot of that money, stay small. Stay small until you get product market fit. Because it's obvious when you get product market fit. No company that's ever gotten product market fit was confused about it. Okay, let's end with that. Thanks a lot, Michael. It was good having you. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having me, man. Had a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to that podcast till the end. If you're still with us, it's probably that you enjoy the players. A Players is brought to you by myself and Hire Suite. We are building a sourcing automation software and we already help 900 tech companies hire the best talents. To know more about us, go to www.hiresuite.com or you can add me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty responsive and always happy to chat. The more subscribers, the best guests will host. You want to help? You can do a lot in less than 10 seconds. Please subscribe to that podcast, leave us a nice rating or review, and share the podcast around you. That really, really helps. Thanks a lot and talk to you soon.